I want to continue tonight in Genesis, really, and I kind of, I mean, I, I want to hit pause in, in a certain sense, and because we're tying up Abraham in the story, kind of the Abraham narrative, if you will. If you look, chapter 23, you had chapter 22, that's Abraham and Isaac, and at the end of it, what we'll look at tonight is the reiteration of the promise, and how that promise comes. And um, then you have 20, 23, Sarah passes away, and they get the, the land there for her. 24, Isaac and Rebekah are married. And then 25, as you move through that, Abraham passes away, and it kind of closes the book on Abraham. So we'll go through those rather quickly next week is the plan. But tonight, I want to kind of hit a pause on this and just talk right there in chapter 22, that verse, uh, I got my glasses, verse 15, and through the end of the chapter, and just talk about kind of Abraham's obedience, Abraham's obedience, and, and, and look at that together. And so if you see what happens, you have Abraham there on the mountain, you have him uh, the ram caught in the thicket by its horns and the substitutionary sacrifice is now given and Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide and that Lord will provide is the Lord will seen, see and so I mentioned last week is that idea of where the Lord has shown himself in his goodness but also understanding that word see, how the Lord sees to it. He makes sure it is done. And so the sacrifice is completed. The Lord has seen to it, if you will. He's taking care of the sacrifice and he has provided. And so that's been done. Abraham calls his name there. And uh, to this day, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so also just noting this mountain, Mount Moriah, where he goes is the same place that the temple was in the same place that David sacrificed on the threshing floor and then the temple was built. And so you see this connection throughout of where God has provided. And so ultimately it ends with that understanding on that mountain. And the angel, it says in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." And so I want us to look and consider that you have obeyed my voice tonight and consider Abraham's obedience, all right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be with us. Lord, thank you for your word and your word is true. And so God, as we uh, seek to learn tonight from your word, that's why we've gathered here. That's why we've come together to, to, to gather around your word and to learn from it. And so God, as we Hear your word as the Spirit applies your word in our heart and our life. Help us to grow in grace. That word we even discussed this past Sunday. Help us to be sanctified in the truth. And so, Father, purify us, sanctify us in your word. Help us to be better followers of you, more faithful to you. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I do need to say one thing. I don't know if y'all listened to my sermon on Sunday, but I got about 20 texts 
asking me who was the bobblehead on the shelf behind me. And so uh, just to let you know that wasn't anything great, that was Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had, he died in 1892, I believe, and right before he died, he had issued the rights to have a bobblehead made of him. So that's who that was, just to let you know. I meant to say that earlier. This spot here in Genesis chapter 22 is the first time we've seen the word. Now, we've talked about this before, but this is the first time we have seen the word for obey. And so here, the angel of the Lord speaks to Abraham after he had completed this task, this test that was placed before him, as the word says. And it says, he reiterates the promises, all that he had already said, your offspring will be the sand of the seashore, and all your enemies shall possess them at the gate. Your offspring shall be the nations of the earth. They'll all be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He gives this because statement. Because of your obedience, all these things are true. Now, I want to, us to just camp there for a second because I want us to be reminded of a couple interpretive things when it comes to Scripture. Remember our passage in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is meeting with his disciples on the day that he had been raised from the dead. He had already met with two of them on the road to Emmaus, remember, and, and explained to them, as it said in Luke 24, explained to them everything that was in the Old Testament that was written about him, basically. And so then he, he comes back, and now all the disciples are gathered together in Jerusalem on that late Sunday evening, and Jesus appears in the room with them. And it says, Luke, it tells us that he began with Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the law written by Moses. He began with Moses and the prophets, which are all of the prophets starting, starting there with Isaiah and running all the way through, and the writings or the Psalms, which is all that middle section that gives us the history and other things in the Old Testament. The three sections of the Old Testament, he went to those and he, as Luke tells us, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And everything written in the law and the writings and the prophets are about Jesus. And so Jesus tells us the key interpretive principle for the Old Testament for us is that Jesus is the key. Everything is pointing toward him. And so when we come to stories, this is what separates us out. And to make this simplified, I don't mean this in a bad way, but to make this simplified, this is what makes me different than a Jewish rabbi, if you will, who doesn't believe in Jesus, who just preaches the Old Testament as history and moral stories. What we see when we come to the Old Testament now is this is not where we go, hey, we need to be like Abraham or we need to be like David, or we need to find... And sometimes we oftentimes preach it that way, but really what we need to be doing is how does this point me to Christ? And how does this make me a better believer in the Lord? And where do I look for my help? Because we have one, as the New Testament says, that is greater than Abraham. The Abraham saw his day and rejoiced, it says to us. We have one who's greater than Moses. We have one who's greater than David. We have one who's greater than all. He becomes the example for all things for us. He becomes 
not only that, but the Savior and Lord who rules and reigns. That's who we look to. So when we come to Moses, and Jesus even says, if you believe Moses in John chapter 5, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Because Moses was writing about me, Jesus said. So if you believe it, that's why I believe you can give me all the scholars in the world who want to kind of come at us and say that, well, obviously different people wrote the first five books. It wasn't just Moses who wrote it. Well, do you know better than Jesus? Because Jesus says Moses wrote it. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to stick with Jesus, right? Everybody got me? That's where we're going to stay. So here Jesus says Moses was writing about me. If you believe Moses, you believe me. And so ultimately we know that this points us to Christ. All of it points us to Christ. And what we see here is that it would be us who would be on that altar. And it would be us who would have to have our life taken because of sin, who would have to be sacrificed. But there's a substitutionary sacrifice for us waiting, having been caught in the thicket, in the thistles, if you will, this lamb who was spotless before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of it points us to Christ. And so we come out of this wanting to be better believers, better followers, better trust, more trusting in Christ when we read these passages. At the same time, there are places in here that helps become exemplary faith for us that we can learn lessons from. And as we are following Jesus, what can we learn now in our walk daily as we look to Abraham? How can we learn here as we are following after Christ? What can we learn to be better followers? It's interesting how the Old Testament tells the story. The Old Testament, a lot of times when we tell stories and you read uh, novels and other things, we like to tell stories that doesn't just get at what happens. It gets at motives, right? Why did they do that? And we'd like to tell it where they understand what are the, the, what's the motivation, what was the intent behind of, of those things. And so when we tell stories, we like to hear that intent or that motivation that comes about. And, and we maybe, that's what we like to read, not just why, what they did, but why they did it. But the emphasis when we see stories here in the Old Testament, the emphasis is not in the intent or the motivation necessarily, the emphasis is in the action. And so they don't tell stories telling us what was going on in Abraham's mind. He doesn't know for us what's going on in his mind when he's doing this. He doesn't try to figure that out. Although Hebrews helps us when it tells us that he would go and he would sacrifice his son because he believed his son would be raised again from the dead because the promise is true. But the scriptures here in Genesis aren't telling us what's going on in Abraham's mind. They're simply telling us what he did. And and what we believe in scripture then is what you do reflects what you believe, right? We've talked about this before. To believe is an action word. To believe means you're going to do something. If I believe in something, I'm going to act upon that belief. It is necessary to act upon it. You can't believe in something without acting upon it. If you tell me you believe something to be true, but you never act upon that, I'm going to question whether or not you believe it, right? Isn't that how it works? Y'all believed. All of you that look around, you're sitting down. You came in this room and you believed that that chair would hold you up, right? So what'd you do? Some of y'all better, better question it every once in a while. I'm just kidding. That's a total joke. I'm just seeing if y'all are awake. But what did you do? You believed it. So you acted upon it and you sat down. It's the same way when you believe something, there's action. So what the 
Old Testament is doing is it's not trying to get us to figure out what's going on in Abraham's mind. It's telling us what Abraham did. And when you tell us what Abraham did, what was his life, what did it look like, how did he behave, how did he act, what did he do, then it pairs over for us to understand what did he believe. What did he believe? And so as it tells the story, he says, the angel of the Lord says to him, reiterating all the promises that he made, he did this because you have obeyed my voice. Now the other part of it is, all of these promises, we know when God makes a promise, what's going to happen? It's going to come true, right? And so in some sense, and we talked about this if you saw the sermon on Sunday. In some sense, when God makes a promise, it's going to come to pass. But God not has, not, has not only ordained that that promise would come to pass, he's ordained how that promise would come to pass. Does that make sense to everybody? pragmatism teaches that the end justifies the means, right? So you have an end and it doesn't matter how you get there because it, it's just going to be justified as long as you get there. So it doesn't matter. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture does not teach that the ends justify the means by any stretch. Scripture teaches that the ends will determine the means by which we get there. And so God has not only ordained the end, that he will win, we will reign with him forever. He's also ordained the means by which we get there. And part of that ordaining the means is the fact that he's ordained things like prayer. And he says, when you pray, I will hear you and answer you. So God is bringing about his promise by us praying. Does that make sense to everybody? And so it's a working together, like sanctification, like we talked about this past week. It's God's spirit working in us to bring about God's promises to be true. So we know that all the promises were given to Abraham were, were true. But what solidified their truth was not only that God said it, but also that Abraham did it, right? So he can say truthfully that all the promises have come to pass because Abraham obeyed. Because you were faithful and obeyed, all the promises came to pass. Now, again, all of God's promises come to pass. Sometimes they come to pass by our obedience. Sometimes they come to pass by our disobedience. But either way, God has ordained our actions to matter. Our actions to be a part of the means by which we get there. And he works within us for these things. And so, ultimately then, the question comes, how, what can we learn from Abraham's obedience. He goes up and the Lord says to him, because you have not withheld your son, reiterating it here with your only son, reiterating that this was the one of promise, that Ishmael is not who we're talking about here. This was the only one that was going to bring about the promise. So you trusted in this one. So what can we learn from the obedience of Abraham? First of all, Abraham's obedience is reactionary to God's grace. God's grace comes first. Remember that in chapter 21. In chapter 21, we saw how God had brought everything together, how God had blessed Abraham, put Abraham in the right place, how he was taken care of. We've seen this throughout Scripture. Our obedience does not come before God's blessing. Our obedience comes in light of God's blessing and salvation. Does that make sense to everybody? Because we don't, we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by what we do. And so as I pointed out many times, I'll point out again. Exodus chapter 20, when you have the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Israel, who brought you out of slavery. Now you shall have no other gods before me. 
He starts with, I've already redeemed you. Now, here's how you act. And you see the same response here. In fact, every time you look through scripture, God's calling us to obedience is never the, the first thing. The first thing is always God's grace in action in our life. How good he has been, how faithful he has been, how he has saved us and redeemed us when we did not deserve it. Our obedience is predicated upon his faithfulness and grace. And you see that same thing in Abraham. Abraham is reacting here. He's responding. And as I've said over and over again, he's leaning in, if you will. He believed God was good. He knew God had been faithful. He knew God had blessed him. And so when God calls him to do even things like bring, sacrifice your only son, Abraham trusts God for who he is and what he's already done for him. And so his obedience is reactionary. God is not going to call you to be obedient to him and him not have already been faithful to you. And so all of our obedience is built upon what God has already done in light of his blessing. What else can we learn? Abraham's obedience was swift and decisive. They keep making this point. If you look back, if you look back to chapter 12 when Abraham was called and he was given the promise and he told him to leave the Ur of the Chaldeans and go, you know, so he, the Lord says in verse 12, one through three, gives him those, those three promises there, you know, make you a great people, give you a land and bless those and bless you. And then he said in verse four, after he called him to go to a land, I'll show you. So Abraham went. And over and over again, you kind of see that kind of statement with Abraham. Because God calls him, he gets up and goes. It's swift and it's decisive. Look in chapter 22 alone. Uh, after all those things of chapter 21, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The, verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and he went. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled, saddled his donkey, and he went. You see it over in chapter 21, verse 14. You see Abraham getting up early whenever God tells him to deal with Ishmael and, and Hagar. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning, took his bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, put, put it on her shoulder and sent them away. And so ultimately when God calls Abraham, his obedience is swift and decisive. It's swift and decisive. Y'all know how we work this. You try to get your children to do this, this instant obedience. You know, this, we need you to listen to me and we need to listen to me now. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so, you know, heaven forbid something dangerous happens to your kids and you're screaming at them to move and hurry because they are never going to move or hurry. Y'all know what I'm saying? Or listen to you the first time. I don't know about y'all. Maybe I'm telling about my, my love. You. My kids, some of them are here. Um, hey, love you. Um, but my point is, we want that. You, you, you need that obedience and you need it to come swift and decisive. Well, that's what the Lord desires from us. And we surely can learn that from Abraham. When God calls you to do something, having already displayed his grace to you, having already made his promises to you, having already shown you his goodness, he calls you to do something, get up early the next morning and do it. Get up and go. And that's something you see with Abraham's obedience over and over again. Psalm 119.60, I will hasten and not delay to keep all your commands, Lord. I will hasten and not delay. 
Why do we delay in keeping God's commands when we know God is good, when we know his commands are right for us, and when we know that he knows best? Why would we delay in it? Why wait? Why put it off? Why, why procrastinate with keeping those things? It doesn't make it, In keeping with God's goodness and his grace, we act swiftly and decisively to do what God calls us to do. To do what God calls us to do. Next. By the way, I love that when, when, when the Lord comes at him just right here, whenever you are operating in obedience to God's goodness and you're af- acting swiftly and decisively in that sense, notice the verse 11 here of chapter 22. Um, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham said what? Here I am. Or you see it back in chapter 22, verse 1. Abraham, and he said, here I am. Notice whenever you are acting in obedience to God and his faithfulness, you're not scared or worried whenever God calls on you, right? Do y'all remember, if you can contrast this, with Adam and Eve in the garden? Whenever the Lord comes into the garden with Adam and Eve, what do he say? Adam, where are you, right? And Adam is diving behind little trees and stuff. He's sewing his fig leaves together, trying to make this thing work and diving behind trees. He's hiding from God because he knows he's in trouble. He's got something to hide. He's got something to put away. But Abraham, who is acting in obedience with God, swiftly and decisively, when God calls, what do he say? Here I am. There's nothing to fear. There's no danger in this. There's nothing to hide from God because he's obeying him and pursuing him. And so rightfully so, could we miss the call of God because we're acting in disobedience? Could we be hiding from God because we don't want him to see what we are doing, but when we're living obedient and faithful lives, here I am, Lord, whenever he calls. Next, you see, this obedience that Abraham had, what we can learn was this was a long obedience. This wasn't a short deal. This wasn't simply Abraham in chapter 22, here's a test for you. I need you to go and take your son. This is 25 years in the making. This is a good bit of time. That, that famous book, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a philosopher named Nietzsche, and Nietzsche is known, he's, a, he's an atheist philosopher. He's the one that said God is dead, right? He's the one that believed it, God was dead, and he, he made all of his arguments for that. But he had a line that has stuck with Christians even. And Nietzsche said that the best obedience is a long walk in the same direction. A long walk in the same direction. That's what it is. And there's, there's a book actually written uh, with that title on it for Christians who are saying, this is a Eugene Peterson. This is, a, this is what obedience is. It's a long walk in the same direction. And so you see that with Abraham. This obedience wasn't, I need you to just be on your best behavior tonight. Y'all know. I need you just to mind me tonight. Just get through the night. Just help me get through. This wasn't what God called Abraham to do. God called Abraham to follow him with a life for a lifetime. And so obedience and the call of God is not just simply, I need you on your best behavior because people are watching tonight. That's not what he's calling us to do. Abraham's life demonstrates that what God's called us to do is to give us, to give him our lives, and we we walk together with him. And while these promises were given in chapter 12, they weren't fulfilled until chapter 22. And here you have a long period of time of Abraham seeking to walk after God. And in that walk, he has some missteps. He goes down the wrong path. He heads the wrong way. But in each occasion, what does God do? Kind of slaps him back over. 
one of my favorite series of books, and I, I understand this is children's books, but C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. We, most of us know the three main ones that have the Pavinzi kids in it, right? So you have Edward and, 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 that, and all of them. And so most of us know them. And so there are some other, there's seven books in the series. And one of them is The Horse and His Boy. And I love this one because Aslan, who's the godlike figure in the story, the boy is running and he's, in, he's on his horse and he's trying to get back to Narnia, right? And so as he's going back to Narnia, trouble keeps coming after him. And trouble is coming from all directions. So he's riding his horse swiftly trying to get back to Narnia. And he believes, because he has only heard legend of it, he believes part of the trouble chasing him was a lion. And every once in a while, the lion reaches up and slaps the horse to get the horse back on track, right? And so when they get back, they got scars on his leg. He's got scars on the horse's hind end. He's got scars all over him because the, the lion keeps slapping him. He thinks the lion's attacking him. He finally makes it back to Narnia, and he finds out the lion is Aslan. And what does Aslan say? Every time you got off track, I was there to pop you back in. He wasn't chasing after him to destroy him. The lion was keeping him on the right track. So it is for us. So it is for Abraham. Every time he steps off, the Lord brings him back, right? And sometimes we look at the Lord like that and we go, you know, why, why would he do me this way? Because what you were about to get into is far worse than what he did to you to get you back squared away. And so ultimately, we see that with the Lord. Abraham's life is a testimony that he's a long walk in the same direction. And sometimes our direction gets off. And if we get off just a little centimeter right here, we'll end up a mile away down there, right? And so it is for us and the believers. We stay on track. And when we get off, the Lord may discipline us and get us back on track. But that's better than getting off track for a lifetime. And so Abraham's obedience was this over a long period of time, being faithful in things, and even when he got off track, getting back on track. So even though you see him diverging in chapter 12 and chapter 17 and 19, even though you see him doing this, in chapter 22, he's right where he's supposed to be, doing right what he's supposed to be doing. And that is to the glory of God and Abraham's long walk in the same direction. Third, I think this third. No, that was third. That was third, right? Fourth, I don't know. Who, it's just numbers. That was third, a long, wall, a long obedience. So you had first, his reactionary to what God had done in his grace. Second, his obedience was swift and decisive. Third, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And fourth, his willingness for whatever God says. His willingness to do whatever God says. I put his willingness here because this does reflect why he doesn't tell us, while we are not told Abraham's heart did this, what you can see for Abraham is a willingness to do what God had called him to do. Even in this hard test, Abraham says to his buddy who helped him carry some stuff up here, you stay here, we'll be back in a little bit. Y'all picked up on that? We'll be back in a little bit. Abraham knew he's supposed to go sacrifice his son Isaac, but he says to the guy, we'll be back. Abraham is going, and it's seemingly that he's going willingly. We know that there are people who are obedient and mad about it, right? Y'all ever heard of grumblers? I'll do it, but I don't want to. Y'all ever heard anybody say that? I, you know, me neither. My kids are angels. And so I, I was, that was covering up for last time. Um, so we, we see this, right? This, like you see people being obedient, but they're angry about it. But that's not what you see with Abraham. Abraham has a willingness to say, 
whatever you call me to do, I will do. Now, of course, Abraham is demonstrating this in the fact that he's, at his, he's asked to sacrifice his son. And he goes to do it willingly. You stay here, I'll be back. We'll be back. You see him doing that as he tells his son, going to do this willingly, doesn't grumble or complain about it, is not, is not bringing that up. He's saying, I will. God has called me to do this and I will go do it. Abraham, we learn from Abraham's obedience and following after the Lord and that that's what God has called us to do. But that's not just Abraham. If we fast forward here just a little bit, that's also Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Who on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he was betrayed, as he's crying out in the garden, as sweat is pouring out of the pores on his face, as stress has come upon him, because what he's about to face the next day is the scariest thing he could ever think of. And it wasn't nails through his hands or through his feet. That's not what he was worried about. He wasn't worried about a crown of thorns on his head or being whipped. Our Savior was strong. and He was not concerned about that. What he knew was those hours on the cross as our sin was upon him for the only time in all of eternity since before we can ever possibly know because he is eternal along with the Father, right? For the only time in all of eternity there on the cross, he would be separated for the Father. And he said, that's far worse than I could ever possibly imagine. If there's any other way, let me do it. But not my will, your will be done. Even if that's what it takes, I'm willing to do it. You see that attitude with the Lord. You see that Attitude exemplified also here with Abraham. Whatever it takes, God's called us to do it. Our willingness, our heart should be willing and happy. Fifth, Abraham has a confident, a confident faith. I mentioned, I mean, obedience. I mentioned this already. He says to his buddy, me and the boy, we will be back. Or verse seven and eight there, that's what he says, right? He says, uh, and Isaac said, uh, no, that's going to be the next one. He has a confident faith. We'll be back. He knows that God will do it. That's where Hebrews tells us even if he sacrificed uh, Isaac, he believed he would raise him from the dead. We should have an obedience that's confident. Confident that it will be rewarded. We'll talk about it in a minute. Confident that this is the right way. We trust in what God says and we go that way. Y'all know how it is if you're trying to find directions. It's always better. Nowadays, directions is a whole new game. It's, it's hard for me. You know, I loved maps. The book, open that thing up, figure it out. Not everybody could read it, so I felt like I was, more, I was better than everybody else. And they didn't have a good sense of direction. I always felt like the Lord would give me that. And nowadays, you just type something into your phone. It takes you right there. It takes all the fun out of it. But y'all remember, it's a lot better to go somewhere when, those, when somebody who's already been there told you how to get there, right? Here's how you do it. You go down to the past that, where that fence stops, take a left. Two trees, you'll see two big trees together. Take a right at the two big trees. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Dirt road, half of it's gravel, the rest of it's dirt. You'll see that. Just keep going. So if somebody's been there, I trust that. They've been there. I want to do it. And so it is for the Lord here. Ultimately, our directions are not coming from a novice. Our call and what we ask to do and what he's called us to do are not common, coming from somebody who's never been there. They're coming from the king of kings and Lord, the creator of the universe who spoke this into existence. We should have a confidence that his word is true. And, and that confidence should come to us even when the world is saying the exact opposite, right? 
even when the world is offering up the exact opposite. I tell people all the time, as my buddy says, we as Christians need to know that we are weird. And we're going to get weirder as time goes on. And so people go, you, you believe somebody walked on the water? Have you ever seen that? You believe he raised somebody from, yeah, I believe that. I believe even crazier stuff. I believe he's going to split the sky wide open and come back on the white horse. You know what I'm saying? Deal with that. And as Christians, we shouldn't back up from those things. We shouldn't sit there and say, I want to remain culturally re relevant in this, this way. And we don't want to dispose of anyone's sensibilities. We want to make sure that we are, we shouldn't back up from what God's word says. In fact, we should embrace it and embrace it all the more. Yes, I believe these things to be true. Yes, I believe he walked on water. Yes, I believe he can raise it. He spoke everything into existence in the first place. So why can he not speak into the natural order of things and make things supernatural happen? Of course he can. And so ultimately, yes, we believe this. We work in obedience knowing and confident that everything he says is true. It's going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass. Abraham saw Christ's day and he rejoiced. And for us as believers, we should have the same confidence that Abraham had when he looked upon Christ's day and celebrated. We should have that same confidence as we look to when Christ will return, right? In, in, in so many ways. There's an old hymn uh, talking about, uh, it's called A Debtor of Grace. And, and, and he talks about it, and he has a line in there in this old hymn that says, the, angel, the, the saints who are in heaven are more happy than us right now. We're still dealing with our sin, you know, just a few more weary days and then. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The saints are, who are in heaven are more happy than we are right now, but they, and think about this for a minute, even though they're already there, even though they've already received their reward, even though they're already with the Lord, they are more happy than we are, but they are not more secure. That's incredible to think about. Even though they're already there, even though they've already received their reward, and yes, they may be happier than we are now while we're still here battling our sin, but they're not more secure than we are because we have a confidence that just as God has said he would save us, he will save us. And just as he has said he'll bring us home, he will bring us home. So while they're there and more happy, they are there and not more secure than us who are in Christ Jesus. And so we act in confidence to that faith an obedience to it, a confident obedience. But then next, you have, as what one commentator says, a contagious example. I believe obedience breeds obedience. And what I love about this passage is we don't know how old Isaac was, but we know he was old enough to tote the wood and talk, right? And obviously, obviously he probably could have deduced some things. I mean, we got kids. We know they're smarter than we are usually. But when Abraham said, we're going, son, the Lord will provide. We don't see any back talk from Isaac. Maybe he had seen his son already be act, this, act this way. But there's no greater example that a father can give his kid than to say, we are going to confidently obey God and follow after him, what he's called us to do. And we know on that side of it, God will provide. And that is. Listen here, fellas, even in the sense of Abraham, ladies, you already know it to be true. Fellas, you should know it. That is contagious to those who are coming after us. What our children need and our grandchildren need from us is to see us act in obedience of faith in the Lord, trusting in his word in every step. And what they will find out is that they won't forget those illustrations. 
They won't forget those things. We can talk about it all day long, but when they see us acting on it, they won't forget that in their life. They'll do it as well. And I don't have any problem creating an attitude in our children that church is not an option. We're going, right? Even when you don't like it, I don't care. Right? I'm the pastor, so I have to say that. But that example stays with them. And that example stays with them in every day when even when it's difficult, we pray. Even when it's hard days, we read the word together. Even in these difficult decisions, we're going to trust God. That sticks with our kids more than anything else. And that obedience that we see in Abraham is contagious. It goes and passes on even to Isaac. Last, we see that he is rewarded for his obedience. Because you have obeyed my voice. Because you have obeyed my voice. I know we're running, we're running short on time just to look over with me to 1 Corinthians. We'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 first. I walked over here and my Bible, look at that, literally hanging. Oh, there it went. It was hanging by a thread, but now it's done. They make others, but I don't like them as much as I like this one. Uh, making it harder to turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. There's our word from this past Sunday. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you who once were now have been you who once were this now have been changed. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been changed by the power of God. And so in doing that, you need to recognize in watching over it, you need to recognize that you're no longer the same, that you are sanctified. You're sanctified. Sometimes that joke will read to you. It won't ever quit. I know. <laughs> Look also with me over in the first Corinthians chapter three. First Corinthians chapter Three verses, verse 11. So this idea here is that our obedience comes because we've been sanctified, we've been justified, we've been changed. So therefore, we're not what we used to be. We've been washed. So it is with Abraham. So it is with us. And so then you look here. He says in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of you have done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. What Paul is teaching here is that our obedience will be rewarded. Our obedience in these things will be rewarded. And so ultimately, that's what we're seeing. Obedience will not be left out. It will not be left alone. It will not be forgotten. God sees it. He knows it. And he will reward it. 
Now, dealing with rewards in heaven is a difficult, difficult thing sometimes for us. How does that work? Rewards in heaven. Let me, let me try to explain it the best way I can. How God will reward these things. If I can explain it the best way I can. When we get to heaven, we will be completely satisfied. Everybody understands? We won't have any lack. We won't have any longing for anything. We will be completely satisfied. But the scripture teaches us that what we build and how we build, there'll be crowns to gain. There'll be other things. So what does that mean for us? Well, there'll be some who are more satisfied. And my answer to that is yes, but here's how it works. It works in this sense. I've got a truck now. That truck has a 34-gallon gas tank. You all know what I'm talking about? My previous car was a Toyota Corolla. I could fill that thing up, 12 bucks. 12-gallon gas tank, I think, 14 maybe. And so you have a 14-gallon and a 32-gallon. It takes me some more money to fill up the truck. But my point is, when it's full, it's full, right? Whether it's 32 gallons or 12 gallons. Same way with the Corolla. When it's full, it's full. It's completely full. It's completely satisfied. What we do as we live a life of obedience is the question becomes, how big will our gas tank be, really? We may have a 12-gallon gas tank, and we'll be completely full and completely satisfied. But the Scriptures teach us, as we build upon that life, after we seek after obedience, we will be rewarded in these things. And so our obedience in this life can help determine what our satisfaction will be there. We'll be completely satisfied. The question is, how big a gas tank are we going to heaven with, right? And so we see this even with Abraham. God says, you have been rewarded because of your faith, because of your obedience. All the promises of God were coming true, but Abraham's obedience sealed the fact that they have come true. God used Abraham's obedience to bring about the promises that he had already made. They worked together, and so it is for you. When God has called you to do something, as his word has told us, we seek to do it because God will bring about the ends by the means by which we use our own life. So God says pray because that matters because that's what he's ordained to change things with and to build things on. God says follow after me, live your life. Because that matters. Because the very fact that you get there in heaven is all because of the grace of God that Jesus Christ has provided for us. And at the same time, when you get there, what's he going to say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Both are true for us. That the fact that grace has been displayed in our life will be displayed every single day in how we act and how we behave and how we live in our obedience. And so we long for that day. And just to tell you how sure it is, look with me to Hebrews as I close it out. The Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Hebrews chapter 6, God's promise. He's going to speak exactly about this passage here. For when God, this is verse 13, Hebrews 6. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Y'all remember that's what he said? He said, by myself I have sworn and declares the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son. In other words, he is swearing by his own testimony and he's God, right? So when you swear by something, you swear by something that's greater than you because you're saying, I do it by this. And so God is saying, I've got nothing greater than myself, but I will stake my own reputation on this. But these promises are true and you'll be rewarded. 
I'll stake my own reputation on this. So the author of Hebrews says he didn't have anybody else to worry about. He staked his own reputation on this, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Patiently waited. Abraham's obedience, his life of obedience becomes an example for us in how he trusted in the promises of God. And by trusting in those promises, here's how he lived. And so if we trust in the same promises, our promises, though, unlike Abraham's, who were promises made to him, our promises that we have received have already been kept in Christ Jesus. And if we trust in those, it will change how we live in our obedience. And we learn that even by learning it from Abraham. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good. Help us to live that long walk. Take that long walk in the same direction of your obedience pursuing after you, Father. Help us to find you faithful in all things and glorify you in your name alone. All of this we ask in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.